This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. As we struggle through the dog days of summer, I would like to pause to bring to mind the flooding in eastern Kentucky, which is where I was raised and my family has lived for over two centuries. The damage is catastrophic in many places, and its degree is difficult to convey. If you are of a mind to help those in need there, I would recommend a donation to the Christian Appalachian Project. I've been privileged to serve on the CAP board for the past several years, and they not only can respond to emergency needs, as now, but they have been helping the people in Appalachia for decades. They are there for the long haul. They are not going anywhere. There's a link in show notes for the Christian Appalachian Project. I recently returned from the 41st Annual Chesterton Society Conference in Milwaukee, where I traveled with my friend Tom Ruby, who is partnering with me on the upcoming Cultural Debris Excursion to Genoa. I met a number of wonderful people and am slated to speak at next year's event in Minneapolis. More on that anon. I did eat cheese curds, which I certainly recommend. From Milwaukee, we did an early morning drive around Lake Michigan through Chicago and up to Macosta, Michigan, home of the Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal at Piety Hill. It was great to see Annette Kirk again, as well as Cecilia and Jeff Nelson, who are back in Michigan to direct the center. Certainly even more great things lie ahead for it. And a reminder that Kirk Month is coming up in October and Kirk Night on October 19th. Make your plans now please do consider supporting the Cultural Debris Patreon if you enjoy the podcast. Any amount helps. There's a link in show notes. If you could leave a five-star rating and review, it would also be most appreciated. It would only take you a moment on your podcast app. In honor of the centenary of G.K. Chesterton's conversion, our poem is The Convert by Chesterton. After one moment when I bowed my head, and the whole world turned over and came upright, and I came out where the old road shone white, I walked the ways and heard what all men said, forests of tongues like autumn leaves unshed, being not unlovable, but strange and light, old riddles and new creeds, not in despite, but softly, as men smile about the dead. The sages have a hundred maps to give that trace their crawling cosmos like a tree. They rattle reason out through many a sieve that stores the sand and lets the gold go free. And all these things are less than dust to me, because my name is Lazarus, and I live. My guest is Michael Possena of Vienna, Austria, a bespoke tailor in that great city of Europe. Michael and I discussed the value of bespoke tailoring, his non-traditional journey to learning the ancient trade, his love of American football, and his passion for mixology and collecting vintage cocktail books. Please join me as I talk with Master Tailor Michael Possena. Thank you.
Michael Pasana, welcome to Cultural Debris. Alan, thank you very much for having us. We're highly honored. I am. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, I know that you've been having some warm weather there in Vienna. What's it been like? Terribly hot. Um, it's getting hotter and hotter every season, every year, basically. Uh, we've we've not had a regular of 100 plus degrees over a period of weeks, uh, as as far as I can remember back when I was uh, I was young. So that's a um, that's a phenomenon that's come up a couple of years ago. And uh, so, yeah, we're battling very hot weather, unusual hot weather, and uh, also pretty humid, something that we've not had before either. So it's a it's it's a climate change has come here, too. Well, uh, has that uh, has that had an impact on the, the kinds of things that, that people are ordering from you? Funnily enough, it has. Um, or should I say it's 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 a logical consequence? Yes. Uh, We've uh, we've experienced more uh, fresco suitings, more cool wool, more Panama uh, than we've had when I started my career, uh, which is 20 plus years ago. Uh, so, yes, the clothing, the wardrobe is getting lighter and lighter as a consequence of the climate. Uh, I personally, uh, I can understand it uh, from from the comfort point. Uh, I'm not such a proponent of it as for as for the, the the perfect appearance of of, of what a wardrobe can be, uh, if we look back at what clothing was a couple of decades ago, um, much nicer drape, uh, much better shaping, easier working, uh, easier handling, easier keeping. But it's it's just yeah, people are used to uh, feeling comfortable um, and uh, with you know a suit not being the uh, obligatory thing and in, in many uh, business branches anymore people are saying well if I do have to wear a suit I have to wear something that I really feel comfortable in and I'm taking an account that maybe the drape is not as optical as it may, might be with a little bit heavier suit um, but yeah so that's uh, that's that's an experience we've made yes do you find uh, have you found that you're getting more orders for sport coats versus suits uh, these days? Um, I would not say so, no. Um, but that may be due to the fact that, uh, the, I think I would say it's about half, half. Um, we have a lot of lawyers. We have a lot of people from the industries, um, uh, who, who have board, um, positions and that's, uh, that's just the, you know, that's a field where people do still wear suits. Uh, but we also have young people that start out with, you know, blazers, maybe one suit, but then go with a blazer, a couple of sports coats, um, just to get into, you know, wearing something bespoke. A sport jacket alone is obviously cheaper than a complete suit. And it's something that, you know, uh, makes young people feel more comfortable. I, I would say that if somebody who's just, uh, you know, starting to make money, uh, would wear a suit every day, it might come across a bit wrongly. You know, people might um, consider him to be conceited or, you know, come across as as wanting to be somebody better than his across. So wearing a sport jacket just shows I do appreciate uh, dressing culture, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be better than you. 
So these are the two type of uh, groups that we um, that are you know make up our customers. And um, so if if I, if I if I would say it's half half, it's it's pretty uh, pretty pretty close to what it is. Yes. So as you've mentioned, of course, you're a bespoke tailor. Uh, please explain to our listeners what a bespoke uh, tailor is. What what sets you apart as as a tailoring house? Um. What is a bespoke tailor? Well, uh, the bespoke tailor is is uh, the professionalist who is making clothes um, onto the body of a specific customer. It's not something that you buy off the peg. It's not made to order. It's not made to measure. It's something that is made up of your individual measurements that will be incorporated in a, in a hand-drafted pattern that again goes onto the cloth, will be cut out by hand and put together precisely according to your physiognomy. It's not something that is uh, already in existence as, as a pattern and just simply altered uh, because of some you know, specific measurements that sets you apart from a basic pattern. It's completely individually made and completely handmade so that that has to be something of a of a dying art i would think i mean that's you know I, where where i am there uh there really aren't bespoke tailors that we would have access to and of course vienna is a, a traditional uh, metropolitan center but uh are there you know noticeably fewer bespoke tailors there than there were when you started um yes uh yes period but um there are there are a few uh emerging again uh it's the situation i would say is that when i started um 20 plus years ago uh we still had four um pretty well known famous tailoring houses that all do not exist anymore uh and uh, so the only one left here from the old, really old tailoring houses is Kinesia, where I did my apprenticeship um, 20 years ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm, prob I'm, I'm practically the last Mohican of, of the old tailoring houses, but um, there are some, uh, some tailors that have done apprenticeship in uh, you know other places and who are trying their luck now so there are some young uh, people coming emerging but there are noticeably less than when i started yes well uh, it's in, it's encouraging though that you have uh, some young people uh choosing to do that yes i think that um the, the reason for this is that for one we are experiencing um or we have been experiencing the past couple of I would say 20 years, um, an emerging group of people that are very well aware of us needing to save the planet of not wasting. Um, so what we do, what tailors do is preserving and, um, you know, being, being aware of, of keeping things, you know, when you order a suit, this it's made to last for decades. And, uh, which is obviously much better than buying a suit every year, throwing it away, getting a new one, throwing it away again. So it's sustainability. Um, so that that's it. 
you know, bespoke tailoring will jump on just that train. The other thing is that we have, um, I have two, two children or uh, young adults almost, 26 and 23, who, uh, who show me or um, with whom I experience that this young generation is very self-aware, um, very self-conscious, and um, are, are, are wish to express their personal feeling, their personal wishes. And tailoring is, in my opinion, the most personal way, uh, the most individual way of expressing your personality. So it's something that young people like because they can express their feelings or what they feel they want to be or the message they want to send across of who they are. So tailoring gives you the opportunity to be very personal, very individual. So I think sustainability and um, the, the, the possibility of expressing your personality, uh, these are the two main reasons why our profession um, still exists and is experiencing some more interest as of recently. You mentioned, uh, you know, having having these suits around for decades. I know earlier this week you and I were set to record, but you had a a client uh, sort of uh, a, a surprise you and and appear out of nowhere with, but but had some suits that he needed to have altered because of some lost weight. So that's one of the that's one of the big advantages of of bespoke tailoring is is that it it does have that adaptability that alter the ability to to be altered in a in fairly significant ways absolutely absolutely it's um uh you if if you buy a suit off the peg you will be lucky enough uh if you find uh i would say four pounds that you can gain anything that's more than that you cannot alter in in uh ready-to-wear clothing there's just not more reserve inside uh, we, on the other hand, we um, we squeeze 12 centimeters reserve into into our garments, so you can gain 24 pounds and have it made wider. So that's a, that's a very unique very unique thing about um, uh, bespoke clothing. There's uh, there's an enormous amount uh, of extension possible. You know, it's it's really just a, a different, a completely different way of thinking about. Uh, clothing that we're used to because we're so used to to buying what what today's been called fast fashion, but just buying things that uh, have have limited adaptability that uh, that people just feel like they they will get rid of rather than having something that uh, that will last them maybe their entire working lives. Exactly. Um, speaking of this, uh, I I still wear my grandfather's white tie his frock, which was made in 1939. So that is close to 100 years old. That, that's an amazing thing. Who, uh, do, you, do you know the tailor? I'm sure you do, the tailor who made that? Yes, his ta the, the tailor's name was Humhal, H-U-M-A-L. And he was one of the grand tailoring houses in Vienna of the, of the 1900s, early 1900s, late, late 1800s, early 1900s. So do you do much work on some of these old vintage garments? Do people bring you, um, you know, uh, garments that they've inherited to have you alter for them? Do you do that kind of work for, for your customers? Um, well, if, if, it's, if, if it's a customer that has already um, uh, been with us for a couple of years and uh, if, if it's a piece, if he's 
that he's inherited, no question, we do that. Uh, we tell them that we need plenty of time to do that because we obviously need to squeeze it in between our um, current orders. Um, but we do that, yes. Uh, and we also, uh, we, we've had cases where uh, customers have come and said, you know, we were on a holiday. My wife discovered this, uh, I don't know, uh, pink sport jacket with blue uh, patch pockets. And she thought I would look fabulous in it. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't fit. Could you please uh, make it fit halfway? So we do that. But what we do not do is if, if we have customers come in from the streets, uh, we do not alter that because, uh, first of all, we don't have the time. We don't have the personnel capacity. And second of all, uh, as I've said before, the, the, the possibilities uh, of, of, you know, rearranging or, or um, customizing things on, on ready-to-wear clothes is so limited that the amount of hours of work that go into it um, stand in no relation to what it would cost. Right. So uh, uh, you're you're working within the Viennese tradition. I, I suppose from uh, an Anglophone perspective, Savile Row is uh, is the uh, is sort of the the reference point that we would have for the kind of of thing that you're doing. What's different about Viennese tailoring to say what one might find traditionally on Savile Row? Well, as, as, as you said correctly, uh, London can, uh, without any doubt, be considered the cradle of, of traditional bespoke tailoring as we know it today. Um, they all, all of what we have today goes back to, to um, English tailoring. Uh, what sets us apart is uh, that the, probably, or most likely due to the, uh, to the climate, the British tailoring has always been a, a pretty sturdy, heavy weight, um, heavy cloth, heavy canvas um, tank of a suit um, <laughs> without being impolite now. But it's, it's you know, the weather and the climate just demanded just that. Um, Vienna did get cold as well, uh, but not probably not that cold because uh, the, the, the Viennese bespoke tailoring that I have known and seen uh that goes back to uh you know I, I would say the early 1800s uh has never been as uh heavily structured and as as padded and um yeah just just as uh pronounced as the as the british tailoring has been so i think what sets us apart is uh for most of the tailors a uh, softer line less padding uh, more around the shoulder, more of what you would um, know from the Italian tailoring. I think that's. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, Italian tailoring is, is, you know, fairly widespread. So that that's kind of what Viennese is as well then. Yes, it's it's not it's never been as heavy um, structures and, and pronounced in its shape and its line. It's like um, I, I think what uh, what your uh, listeners here would. Uh, associate with the old Brooks Brothers suits. They were also softly tailored, that round shoulders. So I think that is that gives you some of idea of what what Viennese tailoring was was about in in the the classic high end bespoke tailoring Vienna nineteen hundred um, is 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 just that. 
Do you find uh, a lot of your customers now come from outside of Austria and international clientele, or do you, or is it mostly centered in Vienna and Austria? Um, I would say it's about a 60, 40, it's 60% Austrian customers and 40% um, from, from other States. We have a great number of customers from Germany. We have some from Switzerland with uh, some from Hungary. Uh, we have uh, even from England, uh, we have from the U S so um, yeah, that that's how it's, uh, I would say that's how the percentage roughly goes 60 homemade and 40, 40 foreign. One of the things that's that struck me about uh, some of the pieces that you've that you've posted online or the sort of the traditional Austrian uh, uh, pieces, especially uh, things like the sort of country formal wear, the hunting themed uh, evening evening dress, is that uh, is that something that that is in fact distinctly uh, Austrian because it's not something that I've that I've seen outside of that context at least. Um, very well observed, Alan. Yes, it's, it's, it is indeed, uh, an Austrian invention if you want. So, uh, it, it came about when, when the, um, Austrian court and the, the high Austrian aristocracy, uh, had their balls after, after hunting events. So if it was a successful hunt, oftentimes when it was, uh, between Christmas and, um, and I would say, uh, like February. Uh, these these two months, there, if there was a hunting event, uh, they would have balls afterwards, and this is what you would wear. You would not wear a um, a dinner suit as you know it today, and which was worn in the in, in the palazzi and in the chateau, and you know, and 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 the Austrian uh, uh, high end residences in Vienna. So on the countryside, this is what you would wear, and um, it stayed to this day. However, uh, when when these balls got less and less on the countryside, because uh, a lot of these great um, or you know big uh, wealthy aristocratic Austrian families, when they lost a lot of their properties in in the former Hungarian and Czech uh, area and had to settle with with the less of what they had in 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 Austria, and even in in, in further consequent moved. Uh, to Vienna and held their balls in Vienna, they took it to Vienna and they they started wearing it here. And uh, when some of these balls started getting public, uh, you know, if, if they were copied by by the public, and uh, when we had these balls like the Styria ball, the hunting ball, and then there's another hunting ball in Vienna. So when the public uh, noticed that, you know, they had these hunting balls and they set up their own balls, it was just copied and, 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 you know, the simple people, if we want to call that, uh, call them that way, uh, started wearing that too. And these balls exist to this day. And so do these clothes. So do these uh, formal country uh, evening wardrobe pieces. Yes. Well, and, and because I guess of the, the limited use they would get, those are things that could last just, all, I mean, almost uh, in perpetuity, really. Those could just exactly. keep wearing you, you, we 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 get some of these pieces um, from, like I said, 1900, uh, from young gentlemen who inherited it from their father or from their grandfather, and and so we altered it for them. So it's it's you know the ultimate experience for for, for an Austrian young gentleman is uh, 
to either have one made because we do obviously have a men's store uh, that sell these type of clothes because, again, we have these balls. Uh, but the old experiments is uh, to either, you know, have one made or some considered even more honorable uh, to have inherited a piece from their grandfather, which is 70, 80 years old, and, um, you know, have it altered for them. Well, and that, you know, that's really an incredible, incredible tie to past generations to to see those events continue on. It seems that you have this, this well-developed, I guess, formal evening culture that's that's held on in Vienna. And that's uh, that's really wonderful to see and especially to, to hear that young people are are involved in it. Yes, it's um, it, well, first of all, I think there is. Um, I dare say there is no, you know, England has its its clubs, its private member clubs, which are um, much more formal uh, than uh, than the ones that we have in Austria. And um, I have a very good friend and customer in the United States uh, who's told me about um, the private members club that he's a member of in in the United States, and uh, they are they surpass uh, the the elite by far what we have here in Europe, except for England again. So, uh, you know, these, uh, but besides England and, and these old colonial clubs and, and uh, what you have in the US, Austria is, I believe, the only country in the world that has continuously held balls for over 100 years or close to 200 years. Some balls go back to the early 1800s, mid 1800s. So I think we're, we have a very sole position in this. Uh, and because it's been around so long and because uh, it's been passed on from generation to generation and because it's, it's fun and it's nice and it's traditional, um, it's, the tradition is carried on. But yes, as you've said correctly, it's so many things are changing in this world. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm fond uh, to experience it's, it's still being carried on. We, we have to be grateful for that. So how did you how did you end up uh, becoming a tailor? Was it when was it that you decided to uh, to pursue that? That's not it's that's not I guess a, a commonly chosen field. Uh, and and then once you decided that that's what you want to wanted to do, how did you receive the the training to do it? Um, believe it or not, um, I decided to become a tailor. I would say forty five years ago. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not joking. It's, uh, the, the thing is that I was, I, I grew up uh, in a surrounding of uh, always well-dressed gentlemen. Both of my grandparents were supremely well-dressed. Uh, my father um, was, was a very well-dressed man as well. So I grew up with this. I saw this and um, I, uh, I soaked it up with my mother's milk, I would say. Uh, and uh, I was, I really uh, decided to do this on, I think it was a, um, it was a party that we had in, in our house when I was uh, seven years old. And we have, we have a, as Venice has the carnival, we have some sort of carnival season in, in Austria too. And uh, there would always be carnival uh uh, children parties that was very popular in 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 my social surrounding, 
and uh, all the children would dress up as cowboys or Indians, or you're not allowed to say this anymore, Native Americans or wizards, or, you know, they had the most fanciest costumes. But I was always a head smaller one, you know, in size and like half as slim as all of my friends. So they will all show up in, in the most, you know, terrific costumes. But for me, there were no costumes available. I was just too small, too slim. And so what my parents did was they stuck me into a pair of jeans from my father. Um, they painted my uh, my nose red with a lipstick. Oh, no. And uh, Yes, put on some <laughs> suspenders, said, you're going as a clown. And I hated it for them. I hated them for this. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do my clothes myself. Um, obviously, that was, you know, be, me being six or seven, that was, you know, far away. But um, it was only three years later that my father, who was a diplomatic correspondent for Austria's leading course, uh, conservative newspaper, uh, was sent to Washington, D.C. Uh, to be the, uh, you know, diplomatic correspondent for them. And as it was a long tenure, the whole family went along. So I attended a public American school in Bethesda. And uh, they had they had one subject that was called industrial arts, and within this subject you could choose uh, a sub subject that was called um, what was that called? I mean, not to say something wrong. It was um, textile industries. That was the name of the subject. It was called textile industries, and and it said that in this in this class. You would be taught simple pattern making and sewing of t-shirts and pants. And I said, heck, I'm going to do this. I'm becoming a tailor. <laughs> I, I will become a tailor. Again, that was far away, but I attended that class for a couple of years and I was taught simple pattern making and I did my jogging pants. I did sweatshirts. I did t-shirts and I, I was tremendously proud. So when I came back to Austria and I was 15 years old, I told my parents, you know what, I'm going to do an apprenticeship. And they said, wait, uh, first of all, this is not what, you know, our society does. You go to the tailor, but you don't become a tailor. <laughs> and secondly, please do your, um, your, you know, high school diploma. If you're finished with that, we can talk about it again. So um, I, did, um, I did my high school diploma. And when I, when I, when I was finished, um, I went to see uh, Knesia, the owner of Knesia, who is um, what Huntsman, Poole, Anderson, Shepin is to Savile Row, Knesia is to Austria. He is the number one bespoke tailor. He served and dressed kings and statesmen and industrialists and in aristocrats for since 1853. So I went into the store and I said, I want to do an apprenticeship. And he looked at me and said, well, you normally you do that when you're 16, you're 19 now. And I explained to him that I was in the U.S. and I lost a year, and, uh, but still I want to do that. And uh, I said, well, let me think about this. Uh, just, you know, think about it twice. And if, if you know, if you're still interested in, in some time, come back to me. So I left the place a little bit disappointed, but uh, shortly after I was offered a summer job in, in, in a small newspaper. 
and uh, they paid me terribly well. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I'll just do this and, and see whatever else happens. And then I was uh, invited by, uh, by another newspaper to, to write for them, and they paid me even better. So I said, okay, well, let's do this and see what happens again. And uh, I did this for a couple of years. And in 1993, uh, I was interviewed by yet another newspaper who paid me better again. And I was making more money than all of my friends who had studied law or medicine. And my parents said, you'd be stupid to throw this away. Uh, and two years into my, you know, my third newspaper stint, um, I was asked to do a series on, on, on fashion and style. And, you know, the, 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 the senior editor of the paper, the publisher said, well, let's Michael do this. He's the only guy who's running in a suit every day. So he knows a thing about it. Um, he will do this. So I would say about six years later, seven years later, I went back to Kinesia and I, 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 you know, I interviewed the owner and I said, um, here, I'm back again and said, well, you're doing something completely different now, aren't you? And I, and I said, yes, uh, but uh, I've still lost, I've still not lost my passion for this. I'm just on the other side and said, well, now tell me, why do you come to see me? And I said, well, you know, I told you I wanted to do this. And secondly, I have an ancestor who was one of your customers 150 years ago, roughly. And he said, no way. And I said, yes. And he said, what was his name? And so I told him, and it was my mother's family side. So it was not Posana, it was Ludwigstadt. So we went into the ledgers and we found them. We found my ancestors and his order. So the wow, owner of, of Nidus, yes, the owner of, 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 of Kinesia was like, holy mo, I, I can't believe this. So um, we, had a, we had a very nice chat and he said, well, you know, I'm turning 70 and um, I'm about to turn this over to my son. And actually I'll be looking for somebody, you know, to, to build up as his right hand. And I was like, well, you know, you should have told me seven years ago, but um, yeah, nice to know. Let's see. And so I did my my series, and a couple of months afterwards, we had this um, this uh, this meeting, um, and I, I I showed them what I had done, the interview, and all the the photo material, and they said, wow, this is this is amazing, this is awesome. But hey, listen, this is much too classic. Uh, you know, we want something for young readers. Uh, could you please do this like on Hugo Boss and, and Ralph Lauren? And, <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? Uh, this is not me. And I've invested like three months of work. Forget it. Please do this damn thing yourself. And they're like, what? I said, yes, please do this. I'm, I'm not interested to do this anymore. I'm not going to do any different than what I did. And, uh, and I left the, I left the, uh, uh, the, the conference room and, and the paper earlier that day. Uh, because I, I, was, I was really upset and uh a couple of days later i'm um i decided to to look into into the kinesia again uh but the owner was not there and so a couple of weeks passed and then i did meet him again in downtown vienna he says so whatever happens to your series and i said i'm so sorry to tell you um this is not going to happen uh because and i told him the whole story and we looked in each other's eyes and, and we said, hey, we spoke about this now almost eight years ago. 
if we don't do this now, we're never going to do this. I quit my job at the newspaper on my wedding day, on, on, on my wedding anniversary day. Oh, wow. And I told my wife, I quit. I quit my job. I said, are you crazy? We've got two children. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to become a tailor. I said, are you silly? Are you out of your mind? What, what, what the heck? So she, she was completely out of her mind. And, um, but I did. So we sat together and we tried to figure out a way, because obviously if you do apprenticeship, you're never going to make the money you need to support a family. So, um, we settled on an agreement, uh, to, to work much more than was actually permitted or allowed by law. And I did half of my time in the sales room and the other half in the workshop. And so, yeah, I did my apprenticeship. Um, I did my diploma as an apprentice and, um, I stayed there for a couple more years. And, uh, then the owner of Knizia, uh, had a disagreement with his son, which is a completely different story. So the two of them split and, uh, I thought, well, maybe this was a huge opportunity and the owner offered me uh, a participation on Knizia. He wanted to um, uh, participate me on the company, and I said, "Well, how would that play out with you know with your son? I would always have him as an enemy." And he said, "No, well, let me do this." But then again, this never played out. I kept asking him, and that went on for a year and a half. So, and then I turned forty, and I told myself, "Well, if I'm not going to set up my business now, I'm never going to do this." So I quit Kinesia after almost 10 years. Um, I, I served as a consultant for, for a company in Vienna for uh, almost two years. Uh, while that time, I took a workshop, which was a complete, it was, it was a ruin. It was, it, it was a completely wrecked place. The advantage was that it was close to where I lived. I had... Um, a very cheap uh, a rent because it was in a, such a desolate um, condition and I could do it with whatever I wanted. So it took me a year and a half of renovation and um, yeah, and then, then I opened my business. That was 2012. So it's 10 years now. Well, uh, congr I, congratulations on your 10 year anniversary. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. It's been very, um, very interesting 10 years, particularly the past two years have been, uh very interesting experience but also a beautiful experience because uh the solidarity and and you know the goodwill and and the you know the the force speaking from all of our customers was just incredible amazing and touching and um it just uh it it came to prove that we have become a family us and our customers and it just showed the appreciation for for this craft and and for the for for the mindset of these people i think people that appreciate bespoke tailoring are uh a very unique species uh they they not only appreciate uh the personal relationship they not only appreciate the craft and the art as such uh but they just uh appreciate a um a certain value and a certain um you know civilization that has gotten rare and and they're willing to support it and celebrate it and uh i was once asked what you know to me uh 
what what style and what elegance is and what you know dressing culture is and i thought about it a while and i think uh, my answer back then was that um elegance is or you know dressing culture it's 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 a way of um it's a language is certain language that you know allows people to to you know, really present their personality it's um it's a very unique and personal thing i think i said that in the beginning uh it's it's just a very unique way of expressing yourself and um elegance is is a language uh you know uh, held in, in 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 material in clothes ba basically well it's an incredible story uh, how i guess how you uh you just kept coming back to it despite what well, was really an opportunity for you know for a career that you were clearly good at and successful at, uh, but but tailoring kept calling you back. It seems like. Yes, yes, it's um, it has, and it's to me still fascinating. Every, you know, every every new customer that um, we welcome to our um, to our shop to our family, um, it amazes me every time I knew that you take a, a measured tape that has a couple numbers on it. And you wrap it around the body, and it gives you numbers, and and you put these numbers to paper, and all of a sudden it gets two dimensional, and from this two dimensional thing, you cut out a fabric, and it gets three dimensional, just from a couple of you know dots and numbers. So it amazes me every time I knew. And the other thing is that uh, I keep coming back to this. It's just so wonderful to see how people become completely different with what they wear and have not only visually but also psychologically uh, you know we we have we have uh, one of the nicest stories that I I was told by one of her customers was um, he ordered a, a blue three-piece suit um, because he was going to London uh, for business to stay there for uh, for a while and he was uh, walking past St. Paul's Cathedral. And there was a huge crowd before the cathedral, a lot of photographers, a lot of Japanese tourists and, and uh, press, it seems, and police. And uh, the police kept pushing everybody away. And my customer walked up uh, to, to the cathedral to see what was going on. He was curious. And the security guard said, this way, sir, please. And they let him <laughs> into the church. And he was wearing my three bleepers, my uh, blue three-piece suit. And he said, never in his life has he felt so honored and felt so tall and so important. Um, <laughs> it was it was a beautiful story. Yeah. So clothes and, do uh, make the man, right? Absolutely. Alan, Alan Flusser, I think, uh, also said that. And it's uh, it's yeah, it's it's a it's it's a true it's a true uh, pun, actually. Yeah. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. My first real introduction to um, the kind of continental uh, tailoring that you do was through uh, the book Gentleman by uh, Bernard Rotzel. Uh, yes. And I, I understand that, that you, uh, you have a relationship with him as well. We do, yeah. We had, uh, we had the great pleasure of making him a, a blue double-breasted blazer um which which turned out very nicely uh and i was i was even asked by one of my customers he said 
Mr. Lutzen seems to be sleeping in that blazer. He's not leaving out those <laughs> without wearing it. So um, I'm assuming he's quite happy with it. And it was, it was a nice project as he's a, a very discerning customer. He knows exactly what he wants and he's seen a lot of tailoring. So um, yeah, it was a pleasure making that blazer for him. It was a pleasure meeting him and, and he knows quite a lot about um, bespoke tailoring. So it was, it was a very nice project. Yes. Well, I, and I certainly recommend his book uh, to anyone. It's it's a uh, it's a classic. Absolutely. Uh, the book, gentlemen, and and it's you know it's available here in the U.S. Certainly, um, but it, you know if you're dealing with somebody like like Rotzel, who is who's such an expert, and of course from a from a U.S. I guess a, a U.S. equivalent would be somebody like Alan Flusser or Alan somebody Flusser, exactly. or yeah. uh, or uh, Bruce Boyer, uh, somebody who who knows style so well, knows uh, the ins and outs of, of what you do so well. Is it easier or harder to work with someone like that? Because they they know so much, they know exactly what they want, but then there's also, they have such uh, such a trained eye that uh, I guess there's there's not a lot of room for, uh, for mistake on that. You're absolutely right, and I would not I, I would not toss the coin on one side of the field. I think it's both. Um, it's easier because they have they have the patience, they know what it takes. Uh, and it's on the other hand, also more difficult because as you've mentioned correctly, uh, they know the in and out and they have a peculiar eye for every uneven thing. So I think it's both. It's easier and more difficult. Uh, but I would say it's it's very nice. My project with Mr. Retzler was uh, was interesting and honoring and and beautiful because we both learned from one another. He's seen quite a number of tailors. Uh, he did a lot with uh, Tobias Tailors in London. Um, that was the first tailor that he uh, visited and that he had suits made. Uh, and he's seen other tailors in Europe. Uh, but he's never, he said he's never, never had a garment made as lightweight, as comfortable, as softly structured, without padding, with just our signature style of how we made. He's never had that and felt as comfortable as he had in, a, in our blazer before. So that was, it was, um, I think, it, in the end of the day, it was a very satisfying and then very gratifying project. Oh, I, I imagine, I imagine that it would be, but uh, I would also, I, I guess just from my own perspective, I would think that it would be somewhat intimidating dealing with somebody uh, like him. Not that I, I'm sure he's a very, uh, very nice and kind uh, gentleman, but uh, just, just because of his reputation and, and knowledge level. Yes. I've, uh, that, that's summed up perfectly well. He's, um, he's uh, very polite. He knows a lot. Um, and, but, but he's all, he knows exactly what he wants so it's he he says straight out what he thinks um so it's it's i i prefer i prefer these type of customers really because it's uh it's always difficult when people come in and and they say well you know i want exactly what you do uh and then you do exactly what you do what you're you know, <laughs> known for and then they will say, well, you know, these trousers are much too, uh, have a much too high a rise, or I have much too sloppy shoulders. I want it padded. You know, if they tell you afterwards, um, a lot can be changed, but it's a lot of work. 
right. and some things cannot be changed anymore. So it's, uh, you, you summed it up uh, correctly. Uh, I'm just adding that it's, it's, it's my preferred type of customer who says what he prefers, what he wants, what he expects, because then he can always say, well, you know, um, this is not what we do, or uh, are you sure that you're gonna be happy with this, looking at what you're wearing now? It, it's just, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very um, open discussion then. Right. Well, to change gears just a little bit, one of the things that you and I have talked about some uh, over the past uh, few years uh, from time to time is your love of American football, which is not, uh, it's not something that you, you probably find uh, in Vienna a lot. Uh, some people, someone who is a, who's a fan of, uh, of proper football, as we would think in the U.S., but uh, uh, what, who, which, is, which is your favorite team? Well, I was um, I was fortunate enough to spend uh, a um, a decade in the U.S. in which my hometown team, the team that of the city that I lived in, Washington, was a pretty successful football team. Um, so, uh, having lived in Washington, obviously, I was a Washington fan, and it was made easy because they were successful. Uh, and I uh, I did take my love for for the team through all the difficult times they've experienced uh with me um all the way here to 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 vienna and uh it's it's something that i've passed on to my son who who's been watching football games with me at two o'clock in the morning we are we are really die hard fans and um yes when i came here when i came back to to uh europe in 1987 uh, football was not very popular at all. Uh, it was it was very difficult to watch games. Uh, it was not really broadcast, and then you would have uh, great difficulties getting linked into links that would, uh, you know, connect you to uh, second quality uh, videos. But uh, this is how I started, and over the years, uh, it got more and more popular because uh, we have an American international school here in Vienna, and. Uh, Football did spread across Europe to some extent, and uh, the, the 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 football team of the Vienna Vikings was founded uh, more or less at that time when I came back, and uh, so we did have uh, some football here, and it was trying to be popular, and we had American co college football players here who would not make it into the draft or who were you know second stringers in the U.S. They were in the starting team here in Vienna. And uh, so this this is how it was made popular. And I remember speaking to to a member of the Vienna Vikings, who was uh, who is well not anymore because we're talking twenty years back, twenty five years back now uh, when he left the stage. But he was by far the best wide receiver uh, that we had here. And he spent a year in the U.S. on a college. And he said when you know when he came back um, to play. Uh, the first pass that he received from from the quarterback in in, in that college team, I think, it was in Notre Dame, um, threw him to the ground. <laughs> it was three three times as hard as quarterbacks were throwing the football here in Vienna. <laughs> so th there was obviously a huge quality difference. But it was the fun uh, for the game, and because we had the school here, and because we had the Vienna Vikings, and it, it's it, it they we had we had a league. 
uh, by, by the early 1990s. So with that becoming more and more popular, uh, we had, and with the diplomats here, uh, we started to have football uh, uh, Super Bowl parties in some of the hotels and cafes here in Vienna. And you would buy tickets for as much as uh, 55 euros. Oh, so wow. That's, that's quite a lot of money. Um, and you, you could have all eat and drink for the, for the whole evening. And they would serve hot dogs, burgers, fries, Budweiser beer, onion <laughs> rings. I, was, I think you would, you would probably have uh, quite a bit better beer there on your own without, without getting the Budweiser. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I took my friends there. I took my son there. And it was it was just a hell of a lot of fun. And now you know we we had NFL games here in in London, past couple of years at Wembley Stadium, and uh, you can buy the NFL Game Pass. So it's easy to follow now, and it's it's much different from the days, at least in Washington, uh, than than you know uh, now. But it's it's still it's it, for me it's it's the most exciting. And most intellectual, you know, rugby fans will now hate me. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> baseball fans will kill me. But to me, it's it's the game that gives you the most opportunities to make points. And that's a fact, period. There's no sport that gives you so many opportunities to make points. There's an extra point. There's a field goal. There's a safety. There's uh, there's a uh, you can do a rushing touchdown. You can passing. Touchdown. There's just no sport that gives you so many possibilities of making points. Uh, to me, it's the most strategic of all sports um, that you can have. Uh, so that makes it very exciting. And, you know, anything can happen. Uh, I'm, I do not need to tell you uh, how fast the game can change and how, uh, how amazing, you know, it is to watch underdogs win. And it's, it's just, yeah, for me, it's, it's the perfect and, and most fabulous a sport event to watch, and uh, I played quarterback in, in in junior high school in Washington myself. So yeah, I, I really love it, and I have an autographed photo of Joe Theismann hanging across <laughs> over my desk. Nice. And uh, what is probably worth even more, a friend of mine told me when I inquired about the autograph, um, I I wrote him a letter, and uh, I received the letter back from the secretary of Mr. Jack Can Cook was the owner of the Redskins in the 1980s. And he said, uh, you're such a nice fan. We're happy to hear from you. Please find and close our yearbook uh, and keep rooting for the Redskins. And I, I felt the cables came out of my neck. I was so upset because the yearbook was, you know, was nice. You could get it. But I wanted the autograph of Joe Theismann. And now the funny thing is that they probably noticed a friend of my parents who was a journalist, who was a senior editor of Reader's Digest dictated the letter to me. So I'm assuming, you know, with my children handwriting of a, you know, a 10 year old boy with a sophisticated um, a grammar of that, they figured somebody had written the letter. And so it was not authentic, but I didn't, you know, I decided not give up. I wrote a second letter, which was probably far less intellectual, which probably <laughs> full of grammar mistakes and everything. But hey, Mr. Jack Can Cook answered the letter personally. And he said, you know what? And that is so, I need to tell you, because this is so funny. Uh, at that point, I was 10 years old. And we're 
We're um, skipping time now, uh, 20 years. Uh, Mr. Jack can't cook said, well, that was quite an exciting letter you wrote, uh, Mr. Posana. And whatever else happens, if you're not going to play for the Redskins, maybe you will turn out to be a writer one day. <laughs> you know, 20 years later, I was a writer. So it was really funny. And he said, well, you know, and I enclosed in my letter, I enclosed um, a couple of drawings. That is my, besides mixology and, and my, my um, uh, fable for American football, my other passion is drawing. And I enclosed a couple of drawings I made of uh, Joe Theismann. And Mr. Cook passed these drawings on to, to Joe Theismann and said, well, you know, there's this young chap and he'd like to have an autograph. He said, well, of course. Thank you for these drawings. And so this is I came up, uh, how I came up with the autograph and, and the letter from Mr. Cook. So, oh, yeah. Fantastic. I, but, uh, yeah. You had so to work hard for that. Uh, you had to work hard for that autograph. I did in a way. But, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> if, one thing, if one thing I was taught in the U.S., it's uh if at first you don't succeed try try again <laughs> um you know you've you've touched on your textile arts class and your love for football so clearly uh your time in the u.s had a big impact on you what was what was living in the u.s as a as a, a young austrian like for you um it was difficult in the beginning because i didn't speak a syllable of english um but i i had the most uh, warm welcome anybody could ever wish for. So uh, I have very fond memories, and I wish at this point to, uh, you know, clearly, clearly say that I owe a lot to your country. Uh, being, you know, being welcomed as a foreigner is something that, uh, in 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 the, in the fashion and the manner that I was welcomed, it was so warm that um, it was a lesson for life and. Uh, when I came back to school and when I have people that, you know, employed for job in my, in my business now, or when I was the right hand of, of uh, the owner of Kinesia and we had, uh, you know, applicants there, I always treated somebody from, you know, from not a, a non inhabitant with more care and more politeness than I would treat people from myself, you know, my, my own country because I was treated so nicely. Um, so that was a big impact. And uh, the second lesson I learned, or the, the, you know, the second great impact, uh, which, you know, which, which I took with me was, as I've mentioned before, I was very small always, and I am to this day. And I wanted, to, I, I played football and basketball on, 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 the, on the school team, uh, which, you know, considering my size, everybody was just, you know, tossing their head, shaking their heads, how that would be possible. Um, and I'm just, I'm just, uh, to all of these people who are saying, how is that possible? You, we all remember Spud Webb. <laughs> so let him and Mr. Posana be a lesson that size <laughs> does not matter. So uh, the thing was that I wanted to play on a basketball team and me being very small, um, our our trainer came up to me and and he said in you know during intermission I always played um, one on one or I threw you know uh, free throws and he came up to me and said Mike we're gonna do one on one ten free throws let's see who wins and I said hey this is unfair I said come on and so we we did ten rounds that was um, 
that was that was our agreement and so he hit like seven from ten i hit six from ten he hit he hit eight from ten i hit seven from ten then it was seven seven eight eight and then and then in the last round he hit nine from ten he said mike that's your last chance and in that last round i hit 10 from 10 free throws <laughs> and he said welcome on the team and so that was something that you know because i said before if at first you don't succeed try try again not only was i given the opportunity to try try again instead of you could have also said well you know this is three rounds you lost forget it no it was a great 10 rounds you gave me the turnaround so that's something that I took with me and i dare say had i not made that experience and a number of others i would have never never dared to quit my job as a family father of two with 30 to start an apprenticeship because in my mind i had from my stay in the us if there's something that you want to do do it because there will be a way give it a try and you will find a way to do that i would have never had that mindset had i not been in the us so that is something that i really owe to your country that i'm hugely grateful for and that i've told my um you know i've passed this on to my to my children and i've passed it on to my wife who is a patisserie chef but who opened up her own business only a couple of years ago as well well and she makes uh she makes beautiful i i've not had the opportunity to taste it but she makes beautiful beautiful creations thank you i'll pass it on to her and she's uh she sees uh she's seeing you following her and she's always very grateful for all your kind and dear comments that you leave her on her account thank you very much alan but it's um this is just to go to say that this is what i definitely owe your country it's um i would have never done that i've never dared that step had i not um been there so that that is something uh that that i yeah took with me i owe to you and i'm hugely grateful for well, I, I would be uh, remiss not to ask you about one more thing, which you alluded to just a moment ago, but uh, on, on your Instagram account, every Sunday, you treat us to a different uh, a photo of a different cocktail. And I know that you have a love of mixology and cocktails. So how did, uh, tell me how, how you got started down that road. And, uh, and I know you also collect vintage uh, manuals, cocktail manuals. Um. Thank you for mentioning that because I do love speaking about it. And it's something that you and I share a great passion. We both have for, um, my, my passion for mixology, I would say, uh, started about, um, well, maybe 30 years ago, but on a less far less, um, uh, consequent and professional, if you want basis that I, you know, follow it now. Uh, it was that, uh, I have, a couple of cousins who are uh, a couple of years my senior and uh they enjoyed getting me drunk when they were 20 something and i was you know 15 16. and uh and i at one point i thought well you know they kept uh drinking their brandies every time uh they kept drinking their wine and their beer and there was no you know of course you could try uh sauvignon blanc you could try a vitlina you could try uh muscatella you could yes there are different grapes um no question they're different beers 
but in the end, it's always beer, it's always wine, it's always brandy. And and I thought, well, it might be interesting to give it um, a specific note to, you know, enhance it. And I quickly learned uh, that uh, a couple of much smarter men than I had the idea much earlier than I did. And I started looking into cocktail books and saw that, you know, there was, uh, it was a very common thing to add lemon juice, lime juice, uh, syrup. And I started experimenting, obviously in a, in a very, uh, you know, a very small frame because it, first of all, it does take uh, quite a lot of money to set up a well set up bar. And, uh, and the other thing is that it takes money if you taste yourself through this and you find you don't like it and you try another <laughs> thing. <laughs> so it's, um, it was, but this is how it all started. And uh, so when, when I started making uh, better money and when I had over the years learned what I, what I liked, uh, I said it would be really nice to start collecting, uh, collecting barware uh to you know complement my passion and uh and cocktail books so i would say about uh 10 years ago when i was in a financial position to start looking because i i did buy uh you know uh, new copies uh when you look up things quickly in the kitchen you don't want to get stains on a 100 year old book um but uh my my goal was always to get uh get vintage uh bar books and so i you know i started uh searching through um some of the the internet portals that you have and the platforms and so i started collecting books and um i'm i'm, I'm very fortunate that i can count quite a, a number of pretty prestigious books into that collection so uh we do have the old savoy cocktail book we have um I have the old Waldo Storio cocktail book. Um, we have Kepler's, uh cocktail book. Uh, I have, um, yeah, I. But the crown, obviously, that I I always wanted to own and always wanted to get was Cherry uh, Thomas's Bible. And a couple of years ago, I I managed to get uh, the 1862 edition of of the Cherry Thomas cocktail, the, the very first ever published cocktail book. Very nice. Well, and you also have, uh, of course, to go along with your with your skill in in mixology, you have a a lovely uh, barware collection too, glassware collection. Uh, yes, it's. Uh, I think that uh, drinking from a nice glass takes it to the next level. It it will automatically taste uh, much better. There's the saying that you eat also with the eye, and I will, you obviously also drink with the eye, but with drinking, I think it's even more peculiar than with eating. Or would you enjoy a, um, I don't know, uh, a very old, beautifully stored bourbon out of a coffee mug if you were blind, <laughs> you would still not like it even if you don't see the mug. <laughs> right. So, I think if you have a small, you know, if you have a small rim and if, if you have a, a, you know, a slim stem, it's, it's just, uh, and if, if you put it to your lips and you feel the crystal, uh, the hand blown, 
it's just it just tastes much 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 different and so this is um yeah i think it's it's a very uh very very much different taste to from from a simple thick glass uh even if it's expensive uh but yeah it it, it has to please both the, the eyes and the lips and and um you know these old vintage glasses do that so very well and so i have a couple of antique dealers here in vienna who always call me uh when they have beautiful new glassware and uh, as, as soon as i'm able to see them i i, I go and, and collect these glasses it's it, it just amazes me how you can get from a from a liquid from a hot liquid such a result uh you know besides it being beautiful to look at the process just amazes me and oh so yeah it, it it is it is incredible the the uh you know the the delicacy and uh, of the designs that they can uh that they can produce it, it's, it's a it's a tremendous skill is it yeah so when you know when you come to vienna one day and i do hope that uh that will happen uh you will have to be my guest in, in my house and we will have different uh, cocktails in all of my different glasses. That, that well, I, I would I would enjoy that very much. You always show us a diver a wide diversity of cocktails. What is your uh, what is your favorite go to at home? If you uh, if you had a rough day and want to want to fix something, what uh, what do you usually go for? Um, my absolute favorite is a ice cold and I mean frozen classic martini, ultra dry. That means just a few drops of vermouth, swirl in the glass, spill it out, and then fill a glass with a frozen uh, gin. That is, uh, I don't know, you're probably not going to be so happy to hear this uh, <laughs> as an American man from Kentucky, but uh, that is my absolute favorite. But uh, my second favorite is, is definitely a very well-made Manhattan um, or well-made old-fashioned is, is number two. It's, uh, it's just a a beautiful cultivated some things you cannot make better and uh a, a old-fashioned the way it was meant to be in the sense of the word is is just uh unsurpassable well i won't argue with you about that uh that's probably i know uh, yeah that's <laughs> there's a mint julep there's a mint julep i uh that i do enjoy in hot summer days but go ahead tell me what is your favorite Oh, uh, you know, I really, of course, it's hard to be an old fashioned. I, I do uh, particularly like um, a bourbon sidecar. So, you know, the traditional sidecar is with is usually with cognac. I, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I use I use bourbon and uh, and just I, I love the I love the tartness of it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really good. I agree. That is something that I would love to join in on that one. Yeah, well, when when you come to Kentucky, I'll I'll make one for you. Excellent. That that would be a big <laughs> honor. No, but you know, another one that is a very nice, uh, very nice cocktail that um, I I have altered up a little bit from its original recipe uh, because I think it's it's a matter of a uh, you know personal palate. Uh, but one cocktail that I I I've been told I do better than anybody else. Is a pagel club. Have you ever had a pagel club? I don't think I have. This is something that you must try. I will send you um, a recipe. It's it's a gin based cocktail, and it's uh, it, it was it was made very well at the Milk and Honey Bar in New York when they mm. stole. Um, 
and it's it's gin, it's Cointreau, it's lemon juice, and some Angostura and some orange bitters. And it's it's the perfect mixture of tart, sweet, sour, full body, not too, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, you, you have to try a Pigle Club and his little brother is the Pendennis Club. Have you had a Pendennis Club? Oh yeah, the pin the yes, the Pendennis Club I'm I'm aware of, yeah. So it's 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 a relative of 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 that. Okay, very very good, very good. Well, we look forward to uh, some at some point in the future the the Pasana, uh cocktail book that that you will release with all of your uh, with all of your tips and tricks. Um, oh, that's, that's very kind, but only. <laughs> Only if you promise to write the preface. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps we can come to an agreement. Although, although as skilled a writer as you are, I would hate to uh, I would hate to step on your toes there. But uh, I don't think you're I don't think you're a letter behind me. Not a single letter. <laughs> I, I do very much appreciate uh, you joining me. Where can where can folks find you? Uh, I know that of course you have an Instagram account. Where can they find you uh, online? Um, well, they find us on www.possana, which is P-O-S-S-A-N-N-E-R.com, which is our um, very humble uh, website that just gives an overview uh, of what we do, how we do it, um, and, and some history about tailoring. And also on, on Instagram, uh, which is at um, M-A-S-S-S underline P-O-S-S-A-N-N-E-R. So, uh, Mas Salon, underline Posana, uh, in which we give a more or less daily insight into uh, what we what we do, how we do it, um, what haberdashery we have. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're happy to answer any question either way. And I will link those uh, in show notes as well. And uh, certainly your Instagram uh, account is a is an absolute must follow always uh exciting content and i will also link in show notes your wife's uh instagram account as well because uh no one uh no one should be without those beautiful uh pastry photos that she posts supremely generous thank you so much <laughs> alan it's um it, you know i consider myself very fortunate to be a tailor because uh it makes alterations a bit easier after having all of these pastries. It's, it's, <laughs> well, that's, I, I, I can understand. It's probably a good idea that I can only see the, uh, I can only see the photos because uh, I would definitely need the alterations as well if I had access to them. But Michael, thank you very much for, uh, for talking with me. I do appreciate it. And uh, maybe we can do this again sometime and even better. Maybe we can do it in person sometime. Alan, thank you very, very much for having us again also. It was a big pleasure, big honor. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I really thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking again soon too.